0: hello everyone it's g3 and today we have a special episode of green marbles featuring the co-founders of ai arena the company behind a new game in development that will feature characters that can be trained for fighting using machine learning these characters will be purchasable and tradable as nfts but as jordy and i discovered this company isn't just another web3 startup or gaming company these two founders have a much bigger agenda in mind. So please, check important disclosures at the end of the episode and get ready for lots of green marbles on this one. And with that, welcome. All right, we are recording an historic green marbles. It is historic because I am joined by Jordi Visser, And two guests, not one guest, Brandon Silva and Wei Xia from AI Arena, also known as Arena X-Labs. Correct. Excellent. We're off to a good, good start. Sitting in my seat, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) They are our, our guests of honor. And they are going to enlighten us about what they are doing, as well as artificial intelligence and machine learning in general. So... Hope that's okay, Jordy. It's all good. All right. Let's go. We are going. All right, gentlemen, can you give us a brief overview of who you are and what your company does? So I'm Brandon De Silva. I'm the CEO and
1: I guess CTO because I manage the engineering team at AI Arena. Prior to this, I used to be a quant in the financial markets and I used to actually work four-way over here and I'll let him introduce himself before we go over what exactly we're
2: building. Sure. My name is Wei. I am the COO of AI Arena. Previously, Brandon and I worked together at a Canadian pension fund where I was leading the Liquid Strategies program there. And yeah, maybe 18 months ago or two years ago, I can't remember, I can't recall exactly <laughs> the date, but um, that was when we started to think through the overall path and potential prototype for what it is that we're calling AI Arena now. And we started on that journey. And what
0: Canadian pension fund were you working at? OP Trust. And that is in Ontario? Correct. Yes. And are you both originally from Ontario?
2: I yes. Yeah. yeah. I think both of us grew up yeah. in and around the Toronto area. Yeah. So.
0: Excellent. Okay. So you met at OP Trust. Correct. And you came up with this idea and you ultimately said goodbye to your nice, stable, <laughs> well-paying jobs. Yeah. And you said, we want to start what exactly? What is the basis of your company?
1: Sure, I can talk about it. So the basis of our company is that we want to make AI more accessible. And there's two groups of people that we care about making more accessible. The first group is basically the everyday user and educating them about AI through a fun and easy to use game. The other end of people that we want to make AI more accessible to is actually want to make AI opportunities more accessible. It's to this undiscovered talent that really doesn't get the opportunity to monetize their skills because... Historic, the AI industry is very focused on credentialization for hiring. So what we care about is giving the people that have learned these skills on their own the opportunity to essentially monetize, right? And we can talk through exactly how we're doing that. But at a high level, it's all about making AI more accessible. And we do that through
0: gaming and Web3. When you say do that through gaming, you have a game.
1: Yes, correct. We have built essentially a game because games are great of abstracting complexity, right? And so when we want to bring AI to the masses, what we have to do is we have to make it very approachable. And so we embed machine learning very deeply into the core loop of our game. And people essentially are playing our game and gaining intuition for what it means to do machine learning research through this fun process. And specifically, it's a fighting game. So the idea is that you're actually training an AI to sort of fight, right? And to train it, you have to show it what to do. And then it starts learning basically your fighting patterns, and then you can kind of set it off to battle other
0: AIs from around the world. To set the table for the conversation that the four of us are going to have, I just want to ask you up front a couple of very, very simple, stupid questions. Please don't feel like you need to give long answers, but just to make sure that our audience can all be on the same page with you guys. Once and for all, what is the difference between AI and machine learning? For sure. So I would say that AI is this sort of umbrella term
1: for any computer or machine that's able to do something autonomously. And this term there, intelligence, that's where the difference lies, right? So there are two ways for machines, broadly speaking, to acquire intelligence. The first is through something that's called expert systems right? And you can think about this. It's kind of like the name implies, right? You get a bunch of experts into a room. They code up all these rules, right? For how the machine should behave. And that's it. The intelligence is confined to what these experts sort of coded in the system. Machine learning, on the other hand, is a different paradigm for acquiring intelligence for these machines. And it's 100% acquiring intelligence through data and analyzing this data and compiling it. So, there are multiple different types of sort of architectures and learning algorithms that's able to process these data and essentially create some intelligence model.
0: And you would say your company is a machine learning based company, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. We are 100% focused on machine learning. Specifically, we are focused on embedding these characters with artificial neural networks, which is a type of machine learning algorithm. But yeah, that's what we are focused on. Please go on. Neural networks. Neural networks. Sure. So you can think about, for example, the biological neural network, right? What happens is we have this sensory input through what we see, what we hear, all that stuff. That then gets processed through our brain, right? And then eventually we get sort of an output, which is like speech or a thought or something like that. And the process, you can think about, oh, will draw sort of an analogy, like what kind of happens when we see something, for example. You can imagine that what gets processed to our eyes is like some image, which is pixelated, right? We have some pixels, You can imagine that we have a series of layers of processing that happens. The first layer maybe puts together these pixels to form edges. The next layer then processes these edges to form shapes. The layer after that processes these shapes to get objects. And eventually you get something a lot more abstract, which is like an image of a cat or an image of a human, right? And we're able to process that just through sort of the sensory inputs, which is these pixels that are getting fed into our eyes and Neural networks work in a very similar fashion, right? That's kind of how they process data. We get some inputs. We have a series of what we call hidden layers that sequentially process this information until we get something at the output. And you can do this for anything, right? You can do this for like image recognition, which is how I described it, for speech recognition, right? The inputs are not pixels. It's rather words or some numerical representation of a word. You can do this for a fighting game, which is what we're doing, where the inputs are basically the environment and what's around you what your opponent's doing, all that type of stuff.
0: All right. I think I understand that, Brennan. That's very, very helpful. Last term that I would like you to define is reinforcement learning. What exactly is reinforcement learning other than it's learning that has something to do with reinforcement?
1: (laughs) For sure. I mean, it does have something to do with reinforcement, but I'll explain what that means. And I'll give an example of like humans, because I think this is like the best example when I'm explaining to people is like, imagine you have a child, right? Your child doesn't really know what is good and what is bad in the sense of like everything out there that's possibly good and bad. And so let's say you're cooking something on the stovetop. Your child touches the stovetop. They immediately burn their hand. It's a very negative experience. We'd call that in reinforcement learning a negative reward. And what happens is because you experience a negative reward, of course, in RL, we have a learning algorithm, but what ends up happening is that it adjusts the probabilities So next time around, the probability that you're going to touch the stove is going to be a lot lower because you had a really negative experience. And so you're reinforcing the experience through some reward mechanism. And so just like you can have negative rewards, you can have good rewards. If your kid does well, you give them a Kit Kat, right? They're going to do that behavior over and over again to try and maximize the rewards. And that's essentially what we're doing in reinforcement learning is just continually giving these agents, right, these algorithms rewards in order to reinforce a certain type of behavior.
0: Jordy, I think from now on with my kids, I'm going to start using Kit Kats as a mechanism. What do you think about that? I think it's an excellent idea, especially
3: since one of your children is still angry about the Kentucky Derby bet last year. So I think finding some new way of dealing with reinforcement learning is really going to help you out. You, you had to rub that in. Huh? <laughs> Wait, well, I wanted to start. We've known each other now for over four years. And since the time that we met, I think the original, I'll say friendship, even though it's a weird word for me, was (laughs) built around our mutual belief that technology had to be incorporated into everything that you wanted to be successful with that included work and included personal life. But you had to use, kind of embrace technology and have it in. We also connected on a personal basis. And I think the dinners we had at the beginning we didn't talk as much about work but we talked a lot about our interest outside of work mm-hmm. and all kinds of different cross-disciplinary knowledge pathways and spiritual and everything along those lines. So I'm most interested in the movement because when you told me that you were about to embark on this I A wasn't surprised because of those conversations even though they weren't specific they were just your interest was very broad to me and it was very technology focused so this wasn't a surprise but I was interested in the conversations that you and Brandon had and just the thought process on doing this? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs out there are probably thinking about the same thing and how you thought about it and how you guys came to this decision.
2: I think the starting point is Brandon and I had a great working relationship previously at OP Trust that we built over time. And Brandon to me is a very rare type of talent. So when he came to the table with this initial idea of Tokenizing AI as a function of us researching NFTs, it was almost kind of like an out of body experience in a way, because it was so profound in terms of its impact that it triggered something in us to say, okay, there's something here to explore. And then that working relationship and the mutual respect that we had made it an easy decision to build something together. That was kind of the starting point. And then when we looked at the opportunity set that was available, obviously, when we started looking at NFTs, it was I call it in the midst of the crypto bull market, right? And quickly we reached a euphoria (laughs) stage. But even at that time, what we saw with NFTs was that it's a very flexible type of primitive that you can drop any type of intellectual property into and then allow the ability for that intellectual property to be transferred on a frictionless infrastructure layer. And then in addition to that, offer new monetization opportunities for people. And that's what we saw in NFTs. Meanwhile, the world saw NFTs as these containers for pictures and what quickly became Animal Farm in terms of like all the different types of animals that you can drop into these like picture containers. So I think the starting point for us was just realizing how profound this technology could become. And I think credit to Brandon for opening up that vantage point for me and then it was just going down the path of like exploration of okay, how do we actually apply this and commercialize it? And initially, we made a joke We're like, okay, this is a really cool idea. This is cool tech. What the heck do we do with it? <laughs> you know? And this is where the gaming aspect of it became. It's almost like the wedge that allows us to create the outcome that we are ultimately trying to achieve now. So that was the starting point and. After that, yes, I had a great career. I still love my colleagues and and the organization of OP Trust, but it was just such a compelling opportunity that you can't say no to. And usually the heuristic that I use is if all of the smart people in the world starts to do something or they're all flowing into that particular domain, that's the signal. Like The cycles will be the cycles, but it's just not something that you want to give up it may be like once in a lifetime to jump in and at that moment it makes the decision easy all right so we
3: talked about this i left morgan stanley around the same age that you left op trust Mm -hmm. which means for me since i'm a lot older than you uh (laughs) that was during web 1.0 when i left so now (laughs) now we've jumped ahead and jumped into web 3.0 the thing that's similar is i left to start my own business And I went from the safety net of Morgan Stanley to the entrepreneurial world of eat what you kill and live day by day. So given the fact that a lot of people have have made this jump, but I think from the traditional finance world- Someone who had, let's say, at your age with the success that you have, I don't run into a lot of people that have made the jump. Most of the TradFi people that I've seen made the jump had already made a lot of money in the TradFi world. They were in their 50s and whatever the case, or they were tech people. How has that change been since you've jumped from one world? And you guys can tell us because I don't know how to describe it. I've said crypto. I've said Web 3.0. I've (sighs) said blockchain. I don't know what this world is, but can you uh, give us a sense as to how it's been since you made the jump in?
2: Sure. It's been way more dynamic than I could have ever imagined before to making the decision. But I think just speaking to my experience of like making that switch, Obviously, it wasn't an easy decision. Like, I had a great setup where I was. And I think the condition precedent for me making that decision was one, I had the good fortune of having great mentors in my previous job, where, you know, someone like James Davis, uh, the CIO at OP Trust, like, he saw the potential in myself and Brandon and kind of gave us the latitude to explore looking at different creative avenues of constructing new strategies in the context of a pension fund. And why is that important? It was important because it gave us like the confidence to understand that any new domain that you get dropped into, you can create positive outcomes if you just follow a process where you're trying to understand it from a first principles perspective and just figure it out. I think that's one of the most important things is like If you have the confidence in yourself innately to understand that you can overcome challenges and they're all solvable and attainable, then all of those things that come with like jumping into a new domain that feels scary and uncertain, you have this innate ability and confidence to say that I can overcome that. So that's number one. And then the other thing that's great about Web3 is like, and we say this all the time, we're like, we're so early into Web3. Like what is a subject matter expert in Web3? That's such a misnomer. Like for anyone to say, I have X amount of years in this space. Great. Yeah. But we're still just figuring things out. (laughs) Like everyone's just figuring things out. And maybe that's just like a framing thing to calm down the nerves of jumping into something. But when you get into the industry, you start to understand, like literally everyone's just figuring things out as we go. So that's a great equalizer from a competitive standpoint you start to realize like no one really has an outright advantage. Maybe someone's a little bit more of a head start, but if we stick to what we are good at, if we build the things that we need to build, and if we look at problems from a a first principles perspective and just exercise judgment, we have as good of a shot as anyone. This is actually the perfect time
3: because most of the conversations and G3 and I've now done this for a while and I've, How many times have I come on here and talked about how positive I am on Web 3.0? But as a direct part of that, Ethereum and Bitcoin, just as kind of the ecosystem index of the world. And we've reached a point where since the end of 2019, despite all the negative headlines, Bitcoin has outperformed the NDX and the S&P both by over 100% through the end of last year. And then to start off this year, Bitcoin, as of today, was up 38% year to date, and the S&P was up about four and a half, and the NASDAQ was up eight. So it outperformed in a period where stocks kind of went sideways. It outperformed on the way back up. And right now, we're at a weird point because we've had arguably multiple hype cycles already in quote unquote, crypto. You said Web3. And that's one of the problems is that I think people are still thinking and arguing as to crypto as opposed to moving into Web3.0. So it could be the third hype cycle of crypto. But maybe we're entering the first hype cycle or the second cycle of Web3.0. But at the same time, we've got a hype cycle which seems to just be beginning for AI because of chat GPT. Being released at the end of November and just seeing how many times it's in the Bloomberg top headlines when before that you heard very little about it. So all of a sudden now with that, with Moderna Merck vaccine, with all kinds of things that are happening, you guys have a game which is part of the crypto world and is part of AI. So can you guys just talk about how important it is? in your opinion, of AI connecting to Web3 and separate it from crypto, but just this intersection? Because you guys are speaking and working on AI plus Web3. And so I'll just leave it up to the two of you guys to answer this one.
1: Sure. So one of the initial reasons why I wanted to kind of create tokenized AI, one is that, I think I mentioned before, it gives a monetization venue for these researchers, right? And they don't necessarily have that without Web3. And we took a lot of inspiration from someone like Numeri, where they run this sort of decentralized data science competition where people are making stock price predictions. And what we were fascinated by is the ease in which they're able to conduct this tournament. And you cannot conduct such a tournament, especially at a global scale on Web2 financial rails. And so we realized that there's this massive opportunity here to actually pay out, essentially, to Really good AI talent from around the world that doesn't have the opportunity through some type of competition. That was number one. The number two is the ability to tokenize these models. And now you make the actual models transferable. Because we truly believe if someone's making a really good AI model, this AI model does have value. And I think we're seeing that in a lot of these use cases that people are very interested in a lot of these models. And so why not have the ability to tokenize them? And now you can very easily transfer the value from one person to the other if someone is willing to pay for it. And then through our game, we realized something else that's like insanely cool is that by tokenizing AI and having some way for it to learn based off of the user, what you're able to do is you're able to capture the skill of a user, tokenize and it's on-chain. It's a digital identity for this person. So for example, in our context, These people are playing a fighting game. This AI is learning how to fight like them. This is being encapsulated in a token that you can transfer value, right? You can sell it. So the analogy we constantly use is like, imagine LeBron James could buy a bunch of shell robots, show them how to play ball, and he can sell these robots to other people who want to either use it to coach or use it to play or whatever. And so the ability to tokenize an arbitrary digital object it can open up so many doors and we're specifically applying it to machine learning type models.
2: Yeah. Maybe the element that I'll add to that is the intersection of AI and web three. I wouldn't say like we deliberately designed it that way. I would say it's kind of an elegant combination once we realized when we went down this path. So there's the tokenized AI side that Brandon just described And then the reason why we came to the realization that gaming could be this like Trojan horse or wedge is we had the thesis two years back that AI was going to have its moment once there are consumer interfacing use cases for AI. Even two years ago, that wasn't the case. It was still very abstract. Like, okay, AI is powering self-driving cars. What does that even mean to the average person? Like, I can't feel it, play around with it. I don't know what that feels like. So when we went through the ideation process of saying, okay, how do we convert this cool tech into something that you can commercialize? Gaming was that domain or that gateway that we started to explore. And I think the reason why AI is having its moment yet again through things like ChatGPT and MidJourney is because it's a consumer front-end interface. Now consumers can touch and manipulate and try out different things with AI. I think the gap still on that side is it's still kind of limited. I don't know how well those apparatuses actually convey and build intuition about what AI is actually doing. Whereas our game, we like to say it's a direct experience of AI. Because what you're doing is you're directly interacting with it. It's learning from you, but you're understanding through this discovery process of, oh, this is how AIs actually learn. And this is how it actually learns more effectively. And this is what happens when you do something wrong and your AI is like just running off the edge of the platform to its death all the time. So that kind of journey of discovery wrapped up into this experience of a game, which is this supercharged engagement mechanism, is what we believe is going to be one of the solutions that we allow more and more people to really build intuition about what AI is. And that gap, I think, in some ways, is kind of an existential threat because people probably don't even want to spend the time to understand AI. And then they kind of latch onto these crazy narratives, like these like super exaggerated narratives about AI is going to just displace everyone and this, that, and it's all very like pessimistic (laughs) usually. Right. So I think we're building that bridge and helping people understand and intuit AI in a way where it doesn't even feel like learning.
3: You know, the funny thing is that last question I was going to ask you was on the disruption but since you just basically said the pessimistic side is what everyone wants to go. I want to go the other direction and you know how much I love data. So maybe you guys can fill in some pieces here. You're kind of describing it as inclusive now more meaning if people can interact with AI, but they can learn from it, it should have a lot of impact the same way Axie Infinity did in terms of bringing in people from around the globe. So you guys must have data on users in terms of where they are. Can you tell us any stories or give us where most of the users that have played the game are located?
2: Yeah, this is the part where it's beautiful for Web3, right? Because Web3 allows you to reach a global audience from day one. And when we announced our seed round of financing, we actually opened a um, Discord to start attracting an early community of what we wanted was just basically like early testers. So we can iterate and figure out what is the... Precise game loop that's the most captivating. And very quickly, albeit this was at the bull market, like a few thousand people showed up. <laughs> and it was really fascinating because, like, it was a cross section of people from all around the world. And part of the thesis for AI Arena is to create opportunities for undiscovered talent. And as we are doing these play tests, testing an alpha version, a beta version, a lot of the competitive players that play these games, they're like from emerging markets. And like our favorite example of that is this guy, his screen name is Jello. He's not fully doxxed, but he's from Nigeria. He came into our community pretty early on. He couldn't get into the first alpha test, but he watched everything like a hawk. And I only realized after the fact, because I went back and checked his like chat transcript in our, in our Discord to see like, when did he come in? And what I realized was like he was intently observing the first alpha competition. And then after that, he was like, I need to play this game. And he lobbied for the champion of the first round to bring him in because we gave that person referral rights to bring him into the second competition. And when he came into the second one, he absolutely obliterated the entire thing, like basically created a new meta in terms of a strategy. And this guy, is, we don't know who he is. Like, he, I don't know if he has an advanced degree. He certainly is not a machine learning researcher. He's just a person that probably has good pattern recognition, good problem solving skills. And through this, he had a vision of what type of strategy he can create in his AI and he executed on it. And now fast forward to where we are now, and that was like maybe a year ago, We just ran our most recent beta and he again dominated the entire competition. He went 22 and 0. He had no losses. And everyone's chasing the shadow of Jello at this point. Like he is already a superstar in our ecosystem. We had these like daily sports center type replay things and people were in the chat just chanting his name saying, Can you just fast forward to Jello highlights? So (laughs) that's super exciting to us because who would have thought in the beginning that someone from Africa and Nigeria would show up at our doorsteps and become the first bona fide superstar of this game. And we have so many of these examples where, you know, if you look at the top three players in our ecosystem, in my opinion, first is Jello, he's from Nigeria. Second is this person, uh, screen name DQ, he's from China. And third is UK, who's from Japan. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's all around the world. And if you look at our current community base, I would say that North America is a a material portion of our community, but there is a vibrant community from Africa, a very like fanatical community since the start of our journey from China, uh, Far East, Southeast Asia. It's like global from day one. So super, super exciting. The
3: most interesting thing about that, just to finish it for all, and this is going to mean anything to you guys, but for Jets fans out there. Sometimes it's better to learn sitting on the bench as Jello did. <laughs> he learned more sitting there and observing than he did playing and that's just really interesting that you can gather that much and be that good stepping in by just watching.
2: Mhm. Yeah, like I think the really exciting part initially of discovering people like Jello was we always had this view that the people who are going to be successful in this game are not necessarily going to be people that came from big brands have the background in machine learning and it just proved out that thesis. And it was so satisfying when it did prove out that thesis. It was like oh, such yeah. a high, it we, was such a high.
1: We were going nuts.
2: Yeah. We were, we were so happy. So those are the moments where whatever happens happens going forward. But like those things are the truly magical moments along the way as you're building something like this.
0: Jello, if you're listening, please reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you and <laughs> learn a little bit more. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Jordy would want to even see his CV, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what you've just described, Way, is, is really fascinating. And, Brendan, if, if I could just ask you, it, it sounds like, based upon everything that you both have described, that this company is really a Trojan horse for helping people to understand the mechanics and concepts of machine learning and to apply the skills that they already have. Is that fair?
1: Yes, but not just apply the skills that they already have to acquire new skills. So one of the things that we saw, which was probably one of the top five most proud moments in my life, was when we did our first alpha, like in December 2021, and there were people that had zero experience in machine learning. They were playing our game. And literally day two, they were teaching other people about critical machine learning concepts, right? About balancing data, sparsity in data, learning rates. And it blew our minds. Man, you couldn't wipe the smile off my face for like two days straight because I spent a lot of my time like for in my prior life just trying to educate people about machine learning and seeing people play this game and subconsciously kind of absorb these fundamental concepts of machine learning was insane. It was so
0: cool. So that's really cool. I love the story. I love the fact that you had this smile on your face. But it prompts me to ask the following question. Given the incredible angle that you guys have already taken, this insight of using a game as the Trojan horse to really tackle a much bigger issue than just gameplay, right? This is an important thing for our future. Why did you decide to compound the challenge before you Upfront by introducing NFTs into the mix. I mean, couldn't you have done a version of this without NFTs as sort of a first step?
1: Certainly, I can start on this, and feel free to, to jump in. Way absolutely, we could have. The reality, though, is that people respond to incentives, and so essentially, what we're trying to set up over here. There's a lot of layers to what we're setting up, but I'll specifically talk about the gaming competition, which is the no code competition where people sort of interact with AI in a very intuitive way. We need to basically create something to aspire to, right? And so what we're building is actually a multi-tiered approach where one tier is sort of like this NFT tier. And these NFTs you can imagine as claims on a franchise to participate in this tournament and what they're earning could potentially be quite valuable. And so once you kind of have this thing at the top where people, the everyday person can see what's happening up there, the potential earning of participating in this and getting really good at this, you naturally will build a big fan base of people that want to kind of like test this out. And by people just like, even just testing it out once, really all we need is like one, two times, and then they're hooked. And people will immediately kind of get hooked in, in sort of the core loop that, that we're doing here, it's just a very experiential AI gameplay. And so, so yeah, feel free to jump in right. but that's kind of like how we're thinking of structuring. And we think sort of this web three component is very important to kind of like build the aspiration.
0: To incentivize people to continue to play exactly. the game. For sure.
2: And I think when we thought about business model commercializing, we took inspiration from a lot of different things. And then where we always came back to is we're both sports fans. I'm a basketball fan. is more of a soccer fan, but When you look at these sports in terms of the business model, really what sports are is content and narrative, right? You can say young people want to play basketball or play soccer because they love the game. And yes, that's true to a certain extent, but it supercharges their experience to want to pursue something because they have someone to look up to. And those are the superstars of the game. So that aspiration is a huge motivator and it should not be diminished because part of it is the brand and the mystique and the storytelling of the person. The other part of it is the financial incentive. So that was like the initial moment where we were thinking, okay, Web3 gives you this financialization layer to distribute value and wealth. In the first generation of how this apparatus was being used, there were some flaws in the assumption that these projects were games were making. So if you take the example of Axie Infinity, the core mistake there was to assume that everyone could earn, everyone could benefit, which in retrospect was like, that was kind of a crazy premise. But everyone got caught up in the hoopla to believe that was the case. But I think we've overcompensated as Web3 today where it's literally the polar opposite. If you try to say financial incentives can drive anything, people are like, no, 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 that's a bad incentive alignment. You can never dangle the carrot of financial incentives. That destroys everything. And it's like, no, that's not true. Because we see it all the time in traditional businesses. So the financial incentive aspect of it is important to a very specific cohort. That cohort is the competitive people. The competitive people are not gonna play a free-to-play game. They don't care. They only care about something that they can demonstrate that they are better than everyone else at. And the thing that they get as a reward is the recognition, the branding, but also the financial incentive because they have to have something to keep score. right? So for us, the starting point of Web3 and NFTs is to speak to and facilitate that financial incentive into the hands of the competitive players because our bet is that if we attract them, we have a better product because it's more entertaining. It's more exciting to watch. There's more interesting storylines to be drawn out of it. And with that, especially when it's global and we can now build up local champions, that's what you have as a conduit to galvanize that grassroot level interest and onboard more and more people into the platform. And Web3 is so. Great <laughs> at for you to cultivate that upper tier of like competitive players and create that financial incentive and bootstrap it and accelerate that in a way that Web2 can never deliver.
0: Very exciting. You guys are still in beta, right? Mm-hmm. You can go to OpenSea and acquire a mint pass mm-hmm. that will enable yeah. you to at some point acquire a game player, right? Yep. You can't get a game player yet, or you can? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Talk to us about what success will look like for the company over the course of the next year. And yeah, I guess that's a a disguised way of saying when will you leave beta and how will you know if you're on the right track?
1: The intention is to leave beta at the end of Q2. And this will basically transition into the NFT version of the game. After that, once we've established our core professional users in the NFT version of the game, What we want to do is we want to transition into the free-to-play version. And this is sort of like the mass market version, right? Where we can get a lot of people playing, trying the game, and basically experiencing AI in in a very cool and and fun way. So those are the two biggest sort of pillars that we're trying to tackle. And then after that, what we have in our timeline, we always set very aggressive timelines for ourselves. is we also want to launch some version of the researcher platform which is basically another thing that we're launching. We mostly talked about the gaming competition, but we also have a researcher competition, which is basically a code version of the game, right? Where AI talent can actually code up their own algorithms and models in Python and basically upload it and participate and compete against each other. And these two competitions are are separate. So that's what we're trying to accomplish over the next year. And if we do, I would say we're we're pretty successful.
2: Yeah, I think, so it's not, Separate and distinct because basically the researcher competition is going to augment and enhance the gaming competition in a couple of ways. Number one, because the researcher competition is a coding based competition, it's almost like it's a bit more unconstrained. So you can see just how far artificial intelligence itself can take the game. That is going to create interesting dynamics with the players because the players can now take inspiration from what the AIs can do. So if you take the AlphaGo example, the Go players have found new inspiration for how to play Go as a function of the artificial intelligence beating them, (laughs) right? So we think a similar arc will unfold here. So that's number one. Number two, on the gaming competition, basically what we have fixed is the video game players, what they're able to do is improve a particular type of AI model. The first generation of that AI model, Brandon basically developed in the future, they can play with various different types of AI models that other people have developed. So the analogy we like to use is Formula One. Formula One is actually two things superimposed into one. There's the car building competition, and then there's the driver driving these really crazy machines. For the gaming competition is basically these drivers bought cars and they're maximizing the performance out of those cars. Initially, we give you one car. In the future, the researchers are building new cars. So you can actually purchase new cars from the researchers to test out in the game. And it just adds a different dimension and variety. So yeah, it's not like a you know sequential thing. It's in parallel and it kind of compounds on each other and it builds a nice flywheel. So
0: you're not launching AI Arena for... Wall Street anytime
2: soon. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be the first on this podcast to let you know that news when we get there. They didn't say no. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right.
0: One last question for you. You guys both play the game a fair bit, I would imagine.
2: Brandon, more than I do. Yeah, I'm pretty good.
0: (laughs) Are you better than Wei?
2: (laughs) For sure. For sure. sure.
0: (laughs) I've heard you make reference to Messi and Ronaldo on a previous uh, spaces that you were on. Who's Messi and who's Ronaldo?
1: I'm half Portuguese, so I am. Of course, I'm going to say Ronaldo. He is my soccer idol. So yeah, I'm Ronaldo.
2: I am certainly not Messi. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's where the analogy falls apart. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, gentlemen, it was great having you both.
0: Fascinating stuff. We'll include a link to your website in the show notes, and I think I speak for you as well, Jordi, when I say we really appreciate you coming on.
3: Absolutely, it's great seeing you guys, and uh, we look forward to following the path to success. Absolutely. Thank awesome. you so much for
1: having us. Thank you guys. It's a pleasure.
4: This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.